great commission. It's actually a true test of God's sovereignty that he directed me to this passage this week, and I had no idea that Mexico team was leaving this Sunday. It's so great that we get to send them off with this. Matthew twenty-eight sixteen. All right, 16 to 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it's so amazing that the end of your life, after all that was said and done, you gave us this commission, this powerful command, with a promise. You will be with us and you will supply us with power. As we approach your promises and your command today, I pray that you would help us to do so with fresh ears and a soft heart. I know many here have heard this passage many times, and I pray that we are not hardened to it, but we are open to what you would do in us and in sovereign grace, and that you would guide us to the mission field if necessary, or direct us with this passage and how you wish for us to minister in Bakersfield. But I pray that you would soften hearts, that you would work now and speak through me. And you would honor your word and the preaching of your word with great passion for your glory and for evangelism. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1836, this passage was preached at a missionary conference in Scotland. It was actually in Glasgow, Scotland, at a college of... Um, well, a bunch of medical students were studying there at this college. And the missionary that spoke was from Africa. And he spoke just on a trip back for, to, the, um, well, to Scotland, and he spoke trying to get more missionaries to go out with him. And he preached this passage. And at the very end of his sermon, he turned to the people and said, Every single morning from my village in Africa, I can look out and I can see thousands of columns of smoke rising from villages that have never heard the name of Jesus. Every single morning. He read the passage one more time. He told the people, I'm going back. Who will go with me? And it's a testimony to God's sovereignty that a man there by the name of David Livingston answered the call. 27 years old, medical student, thought about going to China, but he was called to Africa. And I don't know if you've known anything about David Livingston, about his ministry or his work in Africa. Um, but if not... He spent the majority of his life in Africa. In fact, after this calling, he went to Africa for 16 years straight. No calling home, no sending emails or nothing. Just 16 years straight left his family. And he came back because his body was so torn up that he had to recover. And as soon as he recovered, he went straight back to Africa. But during his ministry in Africa, he walked or canoed about 11,000 miles in his life. It's a different, the distance between Florida and Seattle by walking and canoeing, just exploring Africa, sharing the gospel with every village that he could, and mapping out the territory so other men can come back and follow in his footsteps. During this time, he was actually maimed by a lion. His left side was completely unusable. He was scorched by the sun. He lost his home in a fire from a, a war in the territory, and he even lost his wife. After three years that she wasn't there with him, she was able to finally come, and she came and had malaria and died in his arms. Now, it may sound weird, but I do love to read stories like this because this man was still faithful even after these hard things. Even after his wife died and all these hard things happened. This man died in the heart of Africa, kneeling at his cot, as he did every single morning, praying for Africa. He lived an amazing life. And when I hear stories like this, it just always makes me wonder, how does he live that way? Where does that strength and that power come from? What makes this guy tick? And it's not just him, right? We hear about missionaries all the time, all over the place, enduring incredible circumstances. 
for the power of Christ. And it just makes me think, wow, missionary life must be so hard. But then you think and say, well, wait a minute. Missionaries are not the only ones that, that come against obstacles in sharing the gospel. We do it all the time. I'm sure there's many people here who have tried to share the gospel at work. And the people are completely closed off to it. Don't want to hear it. They want their own life. They want to do things their own way. And that's it. You may preach to them until you're blue in the face, but they will not listen. How do you find courage to keep sharing in that situation? Or maybe there's a family member that you've been trying to share with for years, but they know you. They know your past. They know your sin. And every time you share the gospel with them, they throw that back in your face. Where does the strength come from in that situation to keep preaching the gospel? Or another situation where you've raised kids, you spent your whole life pouring into them, bringing them to church, teaching them what Jesus said, and they look like they're following Christ. But as soon as they graduate high school, they're gone. They leave the church, abandon the faith. It just breaks your heart. How do you find strength to continue to preach the gospel to other people when you spent so much time doing it to that one person? Where does that strength come from? That is the questions that I want to ask today. And I believe all those questions can be summed up in this one question. What makes the Great Commission so great? What makes the Great Commission so great? Is it just another command? Just another list of to-dos that Jesus gave us so that we can check off our list and keep going? Or is there some power, some truth in this passage that will give us strength in times that are difficult? Not only for missionaries, but here in Bakersfield, where we minister all the time. That's what I hope to reveal from this passage today. And God has very clearly laid it out for us. But before we even get into that, let me give you some background here. Let's look at verse 16 and 17. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Now let's remember, this is the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. This is the time when Jesus has spent 33 years in this earth, about three years in ministry. He's shared the gospel. He's done miracles. He's risen people from the dead. He's ministered to these people as much as he possibly can. And at the very end of his life, where they should lift him up in glory, they put him on a cross. And he died and rose again. But he rose again in power and authority. He's come back to his disciples. And notice here that how many disciples there are. There's only 11 of them. 11, the 12 disciples minus Judas. Now, some scholars think that there could have been possibly up to 500 disciples here. Not just the 12, but all other people. Because there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 15 that says, Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at once. This may have been that appearance. But even though it was that, Jesus has come to his disciples to give them his last words. The last breath he has on earth. And remember, he comes knowing what they're up against. He's even prophesied earlier in Matthew that they will face all kinds of difficulties. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. You are going out to suffer. And he comes to them knowing that they will suffer. And so what does he give them? He just builds up their self-esteem, right? Tell them how great they are, how great it was to serve with them, how capable they are of doing the Great Commission and accomplishing and building the church. No. In fact, he does just the opposite He gives them an impossible command. An impossible command. Let's look at that in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Let's stop there. Go, therefore, and make disciples. First off, the first basic command is go. Remember, the Israelites here, they're talking to Jews that have spent their whole life pulling away from society, saying, we will make Israel pure and holy, and by that time we'll be a light to the people of the world. It's kind of the fill the dreams idea, right? If you build it, they will come. That's what they were thinking. We'll just be a good nation and people will be drawn into our holiness. Now Jesus says, no, I've risen from the dead. I'm telling you to reverse that and actually go out. Go out and reach the nations. Leave all the comfort and the lifestyle and the culture you've grown up with. Leave your friends and your family and go out and reach people all over the globe. He's calling Jews to do this. And remember, this is not what the Jews expected, but not what the disciples expected. In Acts one six, we learn that they say, Are you at this time going to restore your kingdom to Israel? So they were thinking, yes, Jesus is back. He's powerful. He's great. He's going to be our king. Let's just build up an army and go attack it and restore all Israel. 
Let's make everything right. Let's just demolish all those people that killed you, Jesus. Let's just do it right now. Jesus says, no. It's not how it's going to be. You're going to leave your nation and preach to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. Remember, the Gentiles were people that the Jews thought unclean for years. And these disciples ministered to the Gentiles with Jesus. But now he's sending out to to them to the ends of the earth. All the Gentiles. What is he supposed to do there? What are they supposed to do? Make disciples. Make followers of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey or observe all that they have commanded. It's a high order. It's a really difficult thing to do. And let's put this in perspective here. 11 disciples, maybe 500. Let's just say that it's 500 to reach thousands of nations. Really, really small church to reach all the nations for Christ. That's languages learned. That's cultures broken into. And let's not forget, this is not the most capable of groups of people. Not the most qualified of individuals. I love this list from Art Exertia. He talks about all the disciples and he says this. Matthew was the unethical tax collector, exploiting his people for money. Simon was the calculating zealot, waiting to put a knife in the back of the nearest Roman. Thomas, well, he was the proverbial doubter, refusing to, leel, to yield any, himself to any positive profession of faith. Philip was a tight-fisted accountant, unable to exercise any vision beyond his ledger sheet. And James and John, well, they were the neighborhood bullies. The sons of thunder, as they were called. Notorious for being explosive and unduly ambitious. And of course, there's Peter. The rock of the church, right? Consistently inconsistent. Emotionally erratic. Plagued with a vulnerability for desiring public approval. And these are some of the men that Christ has picked to go to all nations for him. Probably not only unqualified, but maybe the least qualified group of individuals to do this task, right? If we were to plan another church today, we would probably not pick men like this. Blue-collar workers, fishermen, tax collectors. No, we'd pick men of power. Political leaders, maybe. Or scholars, these great theologians that can impress people. Or these really good linguists that can just blow people away by how they talk. But Christ picks the lowest of low, the scum of society to share his gospel to all nations. It's impossible for these men to do God's work. And if that weren't enough, let's not, remember, let's not forget that the human heart is wicked. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Psalm 53.3, they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not one. So even if they were to break into the culture, learn the language, and these uncapable men men were able to share the gospel, they still could not change hearts. They still could not get people to drop their idols and follow Jesus. And let's not forget one more thing. This message that they're going out with to all the nations is what got Jesus killed. Right? It's an offensive message. Tell people they're sinners and they need to turn to God rather than live how they want. This is an impossible command for these men. There is no way they can do this. But remember, this is a command to all Jesus' disciples. And it's just as impossible for us to do this as well. Now, there may have been 11 then, but let me give you some numbers. I'm a math teacher, so I'm good with numbers. Hopefully this will help. As of year 2000, there were about 240,000 people in Bakersfield. I'm sure it's gone up a quarter of a million already. 650,000 in Kern County. Out of the 248,000 in Bakersfield... 77% of them said they were non-Christian. That's just declared to be non-Christian. And 88% in Kern County said they were non-Christian. Now there are about 100 people here maybe. On average we have about 100 people a service. If we were to share the gospel just to Bakersfield, that's 1,900 people that each of us would have to share with per person. Not only share with, make disciples, call to obedience. And in Kern County, that's 5,700 people per person. Anybody feel up to that task? 
Maybe you do. Let's expand it because it's not just Bakersfield, is it? It's the whole world. Two or 6.56 billion people in this world and 2.6 billion people do not have the gospel in their own language. That's not even including the people that have heard the name of Jesus and turned away. 40% of our world does not know the name of Jesus in their own language. And we're called to reach all of them. All of them for Jesus. Let us not forget, we're not a bunch of scholars. We don't have a ton of money. We're not these huge political leaders. We're not capable of this task. And even if we could reach them, we can't change their hearts. This is an impossible command for these disciples and it's an impossible command for these disciples. All of us. You're probably thinking, well, what in the world are you talking about? You said, what's so great about the Great Commission? This is not great. I can't do it. That's right. That's what actually is great. Because if we can't do it, we have to look outside of ourselves to someone else who can. And the person we look outside of ourselves to is Jesus. Let me remind you of a passage earlier in Matthew with a rich young ruler. This rich man comes to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. He says, okay, sell everything and come follow me. The young man walks away because he can't do it. And Jesus says, it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Impossible. And then his disciples naturally ask, well, then who can be saved? And this is what Jesus says in terms of salvation. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That's what's so great about the Great Commission. We can't do it, but God can. And we get to partner with him in that task. He gets to use us in that task of making disciples of all nations. That's where we begin. We have to humbly recognize that we can't do this, so we look outside ourselves to, to help get help from God. Because if we could do it, then we would get credit. And we would get glory. But that's not how the Bible operates. All glory is extended to God. And that's what the Great Commission is about. And where does this power come from? What makes the Great Commission so great? The first promise in verse 18, that Jesus is our sovereign Lord. That's what makes the Great Commission so great. Jesus is our sovereign Lord. Let's read verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, Jesus just rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death and fear and Satan. And now God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Which is another way of saying that he has all authority. That word authority, that word is very particular. It actually is very similar to the word sovereignty. And sovereignty means this, that Jesus has absolute rule over all creation as king and total determination over all that happens. Not only in heaven, the spiritual realm, but on earth, the physical realm, which was what we see every day. This means Jesus has authority over angels and demons and churches and nations and people. Over nature and sickness and storms and earthquakes. He has authority over presidents and countries and kings and kingdoms. And rulers and oppressors. Authority over our families and friends. Over our children. Over us. Over our minds, our hearts, and our emotions, and our desires, and our dreams. And over the salvation of every single person in the entire world. There is nothing in this world that Jesus doesn't have complete control over. There is nothing in this world that Jesus doesn't have the right to do with it whatever he wants. That's what this passage is trying to tell us. And this is the climax of Matthew, because from the very beginning, Matthew was trying to establish that Jesus is the sovereign king. The first part of Matthew, which we usually skip, the genealogy, right? He says, Jesus descended from the line of David, the royal king of Israel. But Jesus is even more than that. He's not only the king of Israel, he's the king of the entire world. And even in the early part of his life, he was almost killed because he was called king of the Jews. And as he grew up, he was tempted in the desert. Satan said, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Just worship me. Jesus said, I will not have my kingdom without a cross. And he went to the cross. 
died for us and rose again. And now he's given all things, not just the world authority over every single thing. And this is a fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel 7 of the great Messiah taking his reign from the Father. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says this. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Get this. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that will not be destroyed. Jesus is our sovereign Lord. That's what makes the Great Commission so great. But that's not all. We also know that our sovereign Lord will always be with us. That's the second part of the Great Commission. Makes it so great is that our sovereign Lord will always be with us. In verse 20, very end of verse 20. And behold, which means listen up, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always. Men and women, this is a promise. It's not some cheesy promise like people say, I'll always remember you. As much as that may mean to them, that's not what Jesus is trying to say here. You'll always be in my heart. No, Jesus' presence, his godly, all-authority presence is going to be with us. And we see the fulfillment of that right after the Gospels in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit comes upon the church, and God's presence is with the church body and is still with us now, and is guiding us throughout all of eternity. That's the presence of God that has been given to us and shared with us. And this is a powerful presence. I want you to notice three things about this last part. Identification, continuation, and duration. Identification, continuation, and duration. The first, identification. Who is this that's with us? Because that makes the difference of the entire passage. That's what's most important. Who is with us? Jesus Christ, the one who has all authority. All authority. It'd be great if Jesus was with us, if it was just a man, a nice encourager, a helpful, maybe a good counselor. But if he didn't have all authority, that promise would be pretty plain. Look, guys, I am so grateful for people in my life that care for me and that love me and, and you know, got my back type of thing. Even some of them are here to um, hear me preach and support me in that. I love my wife and she would help me in any way she could possibly help me. But she is only human. If I was being charged by a crowd of angry, angry Muslims with machetes, she can only do so much. She might be able to take out a couple of them, but she can't get them all. <laughs> right? Because she is with me, but she doesn't have all authority. See the difference there? Jesus is not just with us. He has all authority. What about if the opposite was true? What if Jesus had all authority, but he was just another man? That's all he had was power, but he wasn't with us or for us. Really, we could spend our whole life trying to please him, trying to do whatever he, we thought he wanted to do. And at the very end of our life, he could just squash us like a bug. Or even if he wanted to or not. Right? This is very similar to the Muslim God, but it's the idea that God just does whatever he wants and there's nothing guiding that. He's not good. He's not loving. He's not with us or for us. He's just powerful. And that is a terrifying God. But praise be to God that in Scripture we know that God is not only have all authority in heaven and earth and is all-powerful and omnipotent, but He is with us and for us and helping us and guiding us every single step of the way. That is so, so important. And that's what we can trust in today. Men and women, this is the divine promise of the new covenant. That Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And let me just read some of the New Covenant promises here. This is the promise of the New Covenant. Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three: I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 32, 40. I will not turn away from them to do them good. Isaiah 41, 10. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my mighty right hand. And Romans eight twenty-eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those or for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work for good. God is for us in Christ. So we've been preaching in Romans and we continue to preach that till the day we die. 
<coughs> Excuse me. Allow me to read a passage here from one of my favorite preachers. It's kind of a long one, so bear with me, but it's a teacher I had at Biola named Eric Tonis. God is for us in his power, his unlimited power. When he decides to act for us, nothing can stay his hand. When he decides to act for us, he will not be denied. God does whatever his holy will determines he will do. God is all-knowing. He never lacks information with that power. He is fully aware of all things, actual and possible, past, present, and future. God is loving. He eternally acts for the good of others. He never runs out of love and affection. He is always showing kindness towards those that deserve only punishment. And he's merciful and compassionate. He cares about our misery and our distress. And he's a jealous God. He won't let us wonder. He's intensely concerned that we remain faithful. So he makes sure that we're faithful and he goes and gets us and brings us to himself even when we wonder. God is all wise. He always has the perfect goals and the perfect mean to accomplish those goals. So God is wise and powerful and jealous and wrathful. Don't forget wrathful. You want God who is wrathful because wrath means that he hates sin and evil. He will always respond with anger towards sin and evil, so he will never stop until sin and evil is finished off once and for all. What a God to have with us. Amen? That all-powerful, almighty God is with us and working everything for our good all the time. That's what makes the Great Commission so great. Almighty God is with us. And how long is he with us? And behold, I am with you always. Literally means every single day. There's no breaks for God. He doesn't take vacations. We may feel like God goes on vacations when we're struggling, when we're having a hard time. Thank you. But God will never leave us or forsake us. Never. He's always with us and for us. And he's always just as close as he can be. And even though we may feel like he's far away, we can trust in passages like this and pray to him and know him and find comfort that he is with us and for us, no matter what. And this passage also says that he's with us to the very end of the age. The very end of this time period right now. And then after that, it gets even better. Because when we die, we go to heaven and we're in in heaven with God for all of eternity. Enjoying Him forever. This is one of the greatest promises that we could have. And men and women, this is the basis for our hope. This is the basis for every single thing we do. And it's the basis for making disciples of all nations. We may have an impossible command that we can't do on our own, but God is more than capable of doing that. And guess what? He wants to do that. And He supplied all power and all authority behind us. And He is with us so that we can do that. There's no greater word that you can hear when you're going off to Mexico today. That God will follow you. He'll be with you and He'll help you and He'll help you in every single word you say. In every single thing you do. Or whether you go and share with a friend or a family member. There's nothing more important that you need to know than that God is powerful and he is with you. So what are we supposed to do about it? This is truly a great command and a powerful command. Then how do we apply it to our lives? The Bible is very clear that we need to be hearers and doers of the word. So if we left here hearing this passage and did nothing, we're being disobedient to our Lord and Savior who has all authority. So we read the passage. Start in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And the 19 says, Go therefore. Therefore. That therefore points back to the all authority. It says, I want you to make disciples of all nations because I have all authority everywhere. You have a right to go anywhere with my gospel because I have all authority there. There's nowhere that you can go that Jesus does not have the right to be preached. And that Jesus will not follow you. See, the all-powerful and the I am with you passage, those are like the grace sandwich of this commission. It encompasses this whole command in grace so that we know that when we try to do this command, God is with us every single step of the way. And we may say things like this all the time. Jesus, I can't make disciples. He says, I know. Make disciples. 
You may say, Jesus, there's no way I can do that. I'm going to have to depend on you completely. Jesus tells you, that's right. Jesus, I'm going to have to be faithful, but the Holy Spirit is going to have to do divine work in changing human hearts because I can't do that. Jesus tells you, that's right. That's true. Lord, I can get people to sign cards or pray a prayer or or answer some questions or be a part of a church, but I cannot change human hearts. Jesus would tell us, right. That's what I'm asking you to participate in. You can't do what I'm asking you to do, but you must depend on me and then do what I tell you to do. That's what's so awesome about Scripture, guys. It's not just a big list of commands, a big list of things to do, and no power behind it. All over the place, God tells us to do this, and this is how it happens. If you love me, obey my commandments. And oh, by the way, I'm sending you the Spirit to help. Right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is the one working in us. Share the gospel with all nations. Preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Why? Because Christ has all authority in heaven and earth, and he is with us. God always commands and empowers. It's exactly what Augustine said. Command what you will and grant what you command. That's the God we serve. He doesn't just leave us, give us commission and say, good luck. Hope it works out. He supplies the need that we have. I love what Legan Duncan says on this. The Great Commission is not a chance for Jesus to help us in our task, but a chance for us to be a part of God's work in bringing all nations together to worship Him. We just get to participate in this. We get to see God work miracles through this. Guys, look, I don't stand up here because I think I'm the most convincing speaker. Or I think I'm the best interpreter of Scripture. Or I think that I'm just so good-looking that everybody just believes what I say. Definitely don't think that one. I stand up here expecting God to work, knowing that He will be faithful to the preaching of His Word. He will be faithful to move among us, and His Spirit will work. I don't go up here in my own power. I trust. We trust and act. And that's what I'm asking you to do. There's a passage here that gives us a command and supplies the power. So we see the command, we trust in the promises, and we take actions. We obey and follow God. So let's look at the Great Commission once again. But this time, remember, it's not impossible with God's help. God supplies the power. Let's read verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples. Make disciples is the big verb. Make followers. Make students. Make learners. People that want to follow Jesus. Men and women, this cannot happen in your life unless you yourself are a disciple of Christ. How can you expect to tell people to know God if you don't know Him yourself? How can you tell people to drop idols and cling to God if you are still holding on to idols yourself? We have to trust in God and commit to following Him, and then we can go make disciples. Because I don't know all of you today, I don't know your hearts, but if there are anyone here that does not know that they are following Jesus, who has not committed their life to following Christ and being His disciple, this is the time. The Bible is very clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. But Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we could not live. He died in our place and rose from the dead so that when we trust in Him, when we decide to follow Him, He sends His Spirit in our life and empowers us and saves us. What's even greater is that once we are saved, God doesn't just leave us. He wants to use us. And He gives us His Spirit and this unbelievable power to use us and guide us throughout all of our life. If you've never done that, Please come talk to me. Come talk to one of the people that you know is a Christian. We'd love to share more about this because this is the most important thing that you could have happen in your life. But as Jesus preached to his disciples, preaching to you guys as well, the disciples of God are called to make disciples, to make students. And where does this work begin? We have to remember that we cannot do it. We cannot change the human heart. So if we can't do it, we have to start with God. The battle for missions, the battle for ministry in Bakersfield, the battle of our church has to begin with prayer. 
We have to start praying for those people that we, don't, that we know are not saved. We have to start asking God to work in those situations. To work in our words and our deeds so that we can minister to them. And just a really practical tip on that. I had a, a teacher in college named Jerry Root. He made a list of ten names. I got my list. I was convicted on this this week and I finally made mine. Made it in college but I forgot about it. And, but he put ten names on the list of people that he knows and are not saved. And he committed to praying for them every day. Praying that God would work. That God would change their heart so they would repent. And what he did is he actually told those people that they were on his list. He said it was actually, it's kind of a funny name, but it's the Holy Spirit hit list. <coughs> but he would come and tell them, look, I'm praying for you every single day until you repent and follow Jesus. Every time he'd be with him, he would try to share the gospel. And he said, you wouldn't believe how faithful God is. He's had to turn that list over time and time again because God is faithful to work in those people's lives and to bring sinners to himself. And that's where we need to begin. I don't know if you want to make a list or if you want to just start praying for people consistently, but we have to begin with prayer before we're going to reach Bakersfield or California or the United States or anywhere in this world. And once we pray and ask God to work, then we go. It's the second command. Make disciples. And then the second command that is a little bit under that is go make disciples. And we forget this so many times that we are supposed to go. And I've heard this quote so many times lately. It's from Francis of Assisi. It's not actually exactly what he said, but so many people have changed it to say this. Preach the gospel at all times and only use words when necessary. I'm not questioning the intentions of the people who say this, maybe even the intentions of the person that wrote this. But I feel that this passage is often, or this saying is often used in time to say, live a good life, and then once you're so good, people will notice that and then come ask you about Jesus. Is that what Jesus said? Is that life any different than a Mormon? Jehovah's Witness, be a good person. They'll just come to you. It's not what we're called to. We're called to go, to seek the lost where they are physically, not send a video, not send a track, to physically go and help people in hurting circumstances. We have to look to Jesus, who is our example of that. He left a perfect, eternal relationship with the Father to come down to earth and suffer and die as a man, to get dirty and be among people because Jesus was a seeker. And we're supposed to be seekers too. We're called to go with the message that Jesus gave us and go out and share the gospel with all the nations, to go seek them where they are, seek the lost, not be like Israel and retreat, but to go out and reach them with this good news. And who are we supposed to reach? All the nations. All the nations. Acts 1.8, Jesus clarifies this even more. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Start with Jerusalem. Start with your home city. Then go out and expand until you reach the ends of the earth. And that's the application I'm calling you guys to today. Start with Bakersfield. Not to say that once everybody in Bakersfield is saved, then you move on. But we start ministering Bakersfield. Then we minister in California, United States, and to the ends of the earth. Gradually move out there. And it seems like I'm preaching to the choir on this because we're in a church plant. Isn't it awesome to think that this church did not exist a year and a half ago? That there are people here who are hearing the word of God that weren't hearing it a year and a half ago. That are following God because of God's faithful work to bless sovereign grace. But men and women, we're moving soon. We're moving to a whole other neighborhood. A whole new people group to reach. And we need to be faithful to witness to them, to share the gospel with them as best we can, and to pray for that community. Let's not get lazy. Even though we have a bigger auditorium, we're not just trying to fill it with bodies that don't care about God. Let's fill it with disciples that know God and love God and want to follow Him. And some practical ways to do this. I need to tell you this too, because I had a very, very bad idea of preaching the gospel to all nations when I was in high school. To me, preaching the gospel to all my friends and family was this. Hey, want to come to church with me? In high school, it was, hey, we have a great youth group, fun events, good pastor. It's a really great place to be, good people to meet. Want to come? 
In college, it was more like, we have good programs, nice people to meet, a fun home group. We do events and like have ice cream socials and stuff. You want to come to church with me? And I'm not questioning the intention of people who say that. I know that in America, we are blessed because so many people are saved in churches like this. The gospel is preached and people come to Christ all the time. And there's even holidays built into our culture that people come to church and hear the word and become saved. That is great. But my intention in saying that was, I'm too scared to share the gospel with you, so I'm going to take you to church so my pastor can do it. It's my pastor's job to make disciples of all nations. Not me. I'm just going to bring you down. I'll be the usher that takes you down the aisle. But men and women... All of us are called to make disciples. We should hear about believers coming to Christ outside of the church. Not just in these four walls. Because all of us are being faithful in ministry. I'm not trying to say, let's abandon the local church and go out and share and just make your church wherever you are. But I am saying, go out, preach the gospel to people outside the church. And once they commit to Christ, believe, bring them in. And we can help them mature and obey all that Jesus commanded. We need to all be doing this. Every single one of us. None of us are excluded if we call ourselves Christians. And I would do this text a great injustice if I didn't say that this text, for many of you in this room, some of you in this room, means that you need to leave Bakersfield. I'm preaching to the choir here a little bit because we have a Mexico team going. We have a ministry in India. We have other people that we're sending out. Dan Healy. And even mention Amy occasionally. We're ministering to the ends of the earth. But let's not get lazy in this. If you're here today and you heard that 2.6 billion people do not have the gospel in their own language. If you can speak and learn a language and you feel your heart tugged. You feel your heart just broken over that. Take one step closer to going to the mission field today. Whether that... That is just getting your finances in order, getting some extra training or whatever it takes, talking to somebody. Take one more step. Because if this church doesn't try to seek the world, we are being disobedient to our Lord. We need to continue that process. And for the rest of us that don't feel that desire just to go, or maybe you're not able to go, let's send them off. I've heard before that you have three options with missions. Go, send, or disobey. We need to be going, sending people all the time as much as we can. And that means that while we're here, we live a militant lifestyle. Live on less than we think we can and give more than we think we can so we can reach as many people as we can. That should be the attitude of the church. That should be the attitude of our hearts each and every week. And I want to remember, this is not just Bakersfield. It's not just the end of the earth. This is going to hard places. If Jesus were just to say, make disciples... We could go to the easiest places and then try and then we failed. That's okay. But Jesus said, make disciples of all nations. And oh, by the way, I'm giving you power. I will be with you. So that means we can trust in God's sovereign hand and his omnipotent power to work on our behalf. And we can go places like Iraq or India or dangerous places where people get killed for the gospel or where David Livingston went in Africa. We can go those places know that, knowing that God has authority over all those people there, over the guns that they are holding, over everything that they're doing, over their hearts and their minds, and if they're going to receive the gospel or not. We can go and preach the gospel there. And there is nowhere in this world where Jesus does not have the right to be worshipped. There is nowhere that people can tell you, you do not have the right to preach the gospel here because Jesus has authority there. And Jesus' authority, power will follow you there and empower you and do great things in you. You hear this a lot of times. Well, let's go out and win the world for Jesus. Men and women, it's already won. They're His people. We just have to go get them. That's exactly what Jesus says in John ten sixteen. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. We go out expecting God to work, to change hearts and bring people to himself. What an awesome thing to be a part of. We're going hoping for a miracle, waiting for the miracle. Not depending on our own strength. This is such a wonderful promise. And if this isn't enough 
to free us from fear and make us bold, I don't know what is. If Matthew 28 cannot get you fired up about sharing the gospel, then you have a problem because God has nothing greater to say. There is no greater promise, no greater atonement, no greater dwelling, no greater presence or greater love that you could have with you and no greater power that could free you from your fear than this. So let's take this, trust in this, and go out and be passionate about sharing the gospel to all nations. And let's go to hard places. Maybe some of the hardest places might be East Bakersfield, neighborhoods we're not used to. Let's do ministry there, different people groups that we could reach there or around the world. Maybe for you, some of the hardest places to go might be to cross the street to your neighbor who you've known for years but you've never shared the gospel with. We can trust that God's presence will go across the street with us, give us words to say, and will give us power, and God can change their hearts. There's nothing greater than that. Or maybe the hardest thing for you may be sharing gospel with a family member who just ignores everything you say, doesn't listen to you, but God's power is able to work through you and in you and in their life. Do hard things and trust in God's power to do great things among us. So we're called to make disciples of all nations. And how does this work? By going and by baptizing. The next part. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that our Lord mentions baptism and discipleship so closely. Baptism is a sign of the disciple. We commit to God. We make a public profession of faith. We're accepted into a church body and we serve. That's a call, men and women, a command to be baptized. You call people to discipleship, then begin discipleship yourself. If you're not baptized, get baptized. And swear allegiance to the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One of the clearest representations of who God is in all of Scripture. You know, the original church used to say that baptism was a sacrament. The Catholic Church kind of has taken this in the wrong direction a little bit, but sacrament is actually from the Latin word sacramentum, which was the Roman soldier's oath to absolute allegiance to his general. See, when the early Christians were baptized, they were swearing an allegiance to God Almighty. And when we are baptized, we're swearing allegiance to our general. And here are his marching commands. We have to obey because we are following him. We are his disciples. And this also means teaching them, teaching those disciples to obey all that I have commanded you. Now we have a bad habit in the church of sharing the gospel and then leaving people. Of preaching the word, saying, sign this card and you're good to go. But we cannot do that. We have to continue to preach, continue to teach people, not just share because the Bible has authority. We're coming to them and and infecting their life with truth all the time, each and every day. And we have to keep each other accountable in this because we're not just teaching each other. We can do that. We cannot teach people to obey. God has to do that work. So we pray for that. We're faithful to the words. And what do we teach? All that I have commanded you. Let's think about that for a minute. Is that just the Gospels? Jesus did the Gospels, right? He didn't write them, but it's about his life. That's who he is. So maybe we just teach the Gospels. No, the commands of Jesus were worked out in Acts, in the early church. And even in the epistles, there are the implications of his commands and how they relate to theology and who we are as people. So at least we teach the Gospels, Acts, and the epistles. What about Revelation? Revelation is the outworking of all those commands, the end result. What happens to those that obey? What happens to those that do not obey? So at least we teach the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? Jesus wasn't even around then, right? We learn in Matthew 5 that every Old Testament commandment finds its fulfillment in Christ. That's what we've been preaching lately, and that's the wonderful truth of the entire Scripture. To teach all that Jesus commanded, we need to teach everything in this book. We need to know it and teach it and live by it and do whatever we can to let people understand this. We trust God that He will not only teach them, but He will help them obey. And that's where the trust comes in, because we can't do this alone. We have to trust in the power and authority of God to change people's hearts. This means we have to do the little things, like coming to worship on Sunday, 
being a part of a small group, holding each other accountable. But we have to trust in these promises, know that God is with us, and act. We may be given an impossible command here, but it is not impossible for God because Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, and he is with us. Now, in closing, I just want to tell you one more thing. The person I mentioned in the very beginning, David Livingston, missionary to Africa, on one occasion, he was asked by one man, what sustained you in Africa? How did you find the strength to keep going, even after horrible things were happening? And he shared a story. He said, when my wife died, that was the hardest time in my life. I had to prepare the body, dig the hole, make the coffin, lower her into the grave, cover the grave. And he was standing around all of his African disciples there. Just, they were just wondering what he would do at this time when he loses the person he loves the most in this world. He opened the Bible and he read the Great Commission. That's strange. Command. He read the Great Commission and he paused before the last words when he read, And I behold, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he told his own disciples, Jesus Christ is too much of a gentleman not to keep his word. So let us get on with the task. If we trust in these promises, there is nothing, nothing that can prevent us from sharing the gospel to all nations. If we trust in the authority of Christ and the presence that he has with us, no matter what we may go through, God will help us continue to make disciples of all nations. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for this promise. It's unbelievable to imagine that God who is holy wants to take part in our lives, but not only take part in them, but to work in us and do great things through us. We are so incapable for anything that we are called to, but we are so grateful that you work in us and that you are for us in Christ. Lord, help this group of people to remember that this week, to remember that the rest of their lives. And I pray that all of us would continue to go to the Great Commission, realizing that the great part about the Great Commission is your presence and your power working on our behalf. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done in our lives. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.